turn to Judges chapter 6. We're going to be looking at that this morning. And as you're turning there, I want you to think of a time that you've been stuck in life. And sometimes we get stuck in life not just in a moment, but in kind of a cycle. So it's not just that you're stuck in one place, but you find yourself stuck in several places. And it really it really ends up kind of being a cycle. Uh, last week, some of you, I heard some great building stories. Uh, most of you who were here last week received a nail and uh, it's, just been a, it's just been cool to hear a couple of people talking about even seeing this nail and some of the things they're doing in some ways to get unstuck from some of the cycles that they've been in in life. Not only do people get stuck, but, but whole nations get stuck. And one of the things we see in the scriptures is the Bible clearly teaches and shows us and instructs us as we see the nation of Israel get stuck in some cycles. Now... Here's just kind of a basic layout of the cycles that Israel had. There would be a season of obedience where they would trust in God. They would walk in his commandments. They would do all that the Lord said for them to do. And then after that would happen, there would be some key victory. They were a people who were smaller than most of the armies around them. And so there would be fights going on and, and, and rescue that God would do and that would, and that would happen because of obedience. After victory, there'd be a season of protection and blessing that would go on in the nation. And God would just have His hand on them. And then what would happen in that season is there'd be a season of complacency where all of a sudden they would start, start to let the things of surrounding nations kind of creep into their way of life. And all of a sudden that would start to, to shove out God and they would, they would forget God. And then there would be a season of blatant disobedience. God said, don't do this, they would do it. God said, do this, they would not do it. And then after disobedience would come what would be called kind of like a spiritual spanking. It would be the judgment of God in some way. And the Bible clearly lays out, here's why their crops weren't going. Here's why the people were attacking them. It was the judgment of God. And the judgment of God, rather than being an angry thing to say, well, fine, it's going to be punishment for you and retribution. Rather, it was this loving arm of the Father that would say, man, I want to do this. And what would happen in the middle of that judgment? What would happen when it would get hard enough for them? They would cry out to the Lord in repentance and then obedience. And then do you see how this goes round and round? How many of you feel like the laundry cycle at your house never ends? My wife's going to raise her hand first, Okay. Uh, the laundry at our house, it just never, ever ends. There's always, there's always some phase of that. And honestly, when you see this in the nation of Israel, um, probably many of us identify with that. We say, wow, I've been right there. I, I've, I've seen where it really was the hand of God's blessing and provision that was making me succeed in all these areas. And I forgot God. I don't know how I do it, but I forgot Him. And then I became disobedient. And then by his great love, I didn't see it at the time because no discipline while it's going on ever seems pleasant. But I see that as, as the love of God that really brought me back. And, and then I repented and then I walked in his ways and it was so sweet for a season. And then what happens? You're back in the cycle. So when we see this in the nation of Israel, uh, we can, we can take encouragement from it and we can also see patterns in our own life. Here's the latest cycle. The latest cycle that we're in in the book of Judges is this. There's, I think, seven judges, and, and, and Gideon's kind of right in the middle of this. The latest cycle finds Midianites, this nation, um, acting as bullies and coming down and basically raiding the Israelites at harvest time. 
So they were coming down, and they were living off of the hard work of others. Yet the Israelites, who were terrorized in the promised land, they were living like refugees in this land that God had opened up for them. They were living in a complete place of fear. It says that they were living in caves um, out of fear. How demotivating would this be at planting and working time toward the harvest to know that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much crop comes in, what's going to happen is a bigger, stronger army is going to come and take it. So you're kind of eking out a living, trying to hide and just get, just get a little bit before the Midianite raiders come and, and steal it from you. They weren't, the Midians weren't interested necessarily in killing off the people because the people were doing the hard work and getting the food and getting the cattle and doing all that. And they would just come in and kind of raid what was going on. The story of Gideon, there's so many different ways to preach Gideon. And I've heard it preached several ways, probably preached it several different ways. But really the text, when you read the whole story in its entirety, it really focuses on God and the fear of Gideon. That's what's at the very heart of kind of this this storyline, which is incredible because it's an entire nation that's being saved. It's an entire nation that's being delivered. But the text, the way it focuses, it really zooms in on Gideon. Now, I know because we can read the end of the story, we sometimes don't stop and ask this question, but going into this, you've got a superior army who's coming in and bullying God's people. You ask this question, what does God need to rescue the Israelites from the Midianites. What does God need to accomplish that? Our mind would say this. Our mind would say, well, if he's going to use a person, which, would, which were in the book of Judges, where he raised up judges to deliver his people. Our mind says, our world says, the ones who get the promotion says, you need a man's man like Samson. That's the kind of guy you want to raise up and have fight a bully as you raise up kind of a man's man, right? This is a graduate, first of his class from Rex Kwando. He's a stud. He just goes in there. He's heaping with muscles, right? You wouldn't pick. None of us in this room would pick the wimp's wimp, Gideon. We just wouldn't. That's not where our brain goes. That's not, that's not where it goes. Now, what's interesting is this. Christian, uh, the, 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 the Christian faith isn't just for wimp's wimps like Gideon. It's also for big, tough guys like Samson. It's actually kind of fascinating that God uses both of those camps. But in this particular instance, he uses Gideon. Judges chapter 6, um, we're going to read it. And by the way, thanks to Brett uh, for drawing our picture this week. Um, I knew that we needed um, a little guy to just draw this battle scene for us, and Brett stepped up and, and gave us the picture. So Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 12, it says this. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, talking about Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? All this raiding, all this bullying. And and where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the sight, go in the might of yours, in this might of yours, and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, sir, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. 
and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. We're looking at invitations of different people in Scripture. And we're just looking at that point of invitation, that point of calling, where God is coming and approaching regular people and saying, I have a mighty work for you. I have a plan for you. I have something I want you to do. And in your bulletin, if you're taking notes, you can pull them out. It says, Gideon was invited to fight. Gideon was invited to fight. That's his invitation. Now, normally we think of name-calling as bad, but when God calls you a name, you better kind of think about it and listen up. His invitation to, to Gideon was addressed to Mr. Mighty Warrior. That's what he calls him. He calls him the Mighty Man of Valor. Now, he calls him this. You can read the whole story of Gideon in a few chapters, roughly chapter 6 through chapter 8 of Judges. He calls him this while Gideon is, is threshing wheat in the wine press. Now, what that means in fancy biblical terms is this. He's doing his job in a terrible place to do this with wheat because there's no wind to kind of blow out the shaft and stuff. And he's doing it in hiding. He's doing it in hiding because he's fearful. So he's doing his job in the least conspicuous possible place out of fear, and God comes to him and audibly speaks to him, invites him to come and fight, rescue the people from the Midianites, from the bullies, while he's acting like a wimp. Now, God has a way of doing this. He comes to Abraham and he says, you're going to be the father of, of, you know, you're going to have more kids than the stars of the sky. He says this to him while he's childless. You're the father of nations. Jesus is talking to Peter, to Cephas, actually, and he gives him the name Peter, which means rock, and he says that you're going to be a rock for the kingdom. He says this to Peter while Peter's acting like what? A marshmallow, right? So he calls him the name long before he actually acts that way. He calls Abraham the father of nations while he's childless. He comes to Gideon while he's in hiding, in the very place where he's shivering in fear, and he says, hey, mighty warrior, you get the sense Gideon didn't look up the first time. I've got the name Dave. When someone in a crowd calls out Dave, I don't look the first time. Because there's a lot of Daves in this world. If, if someone calls Dave, I just don't look. And then I hear, hey, Dave. And then I look up a second time. Mighty warrior. Clearly, that's someone else. Which is weird because I'm alone in this place. Mighty warrior. And he calls him it while he's not acting in that way. Look at verse 13. What is his response? We're, we're not only interested in the invite that God gives to people and the people themselves, but their response to it. The step of yes is to say, I believe in you. I believe in this. I'm going to say yes to it. His response is a little bit mixed. Verse 13, basically, please, God, this God that we've talked about, the wonderful maker that we sing about, our ancestors have told us all these great things. He's left us. He's forsaken us. He's nowhere to be found. Why would I be doing my job here? Why are we raided year after year? Gideon has something accurate. God has lifted his hand of blessing. God has forsaken him in his, for a season for that reason. But what he's missing is the reason for it. 
He's not acknowledging, looking at, seeing it as the discipline of the Lord. He's seeing it as a God who abandons. Does that sound familiar to you at all? Because when I see that and think about that, I think about how quick I am to say, God, where are you? Without ever considering, is this the discipline of the Lord? Has he lifted his hand of protection? Has he lifted his hand of blessing? At the men's retreat this week, we heard from a speaker who's gone into, he's known as the disaster pastor, if that gives you any kind of idea. And he was there at the Twin Towers. He's worked in the Superdome. He had people die in his arms there. He's most recently been in the Sudan. And one of the things I walked away from is, man, God's untold amount of protection and blessing that has been on my life being born into this country is really stark and clear when you see some of the evil that runs rampant elsewhere. Now, though, is the time of rescue. Now things are about to change. Look at verse 14. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. Kind of comical, right? Because he's cowering and hiding out. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Gideon does what I think a lot of us do. He immediately confuses the means by which this is going to be accomplished. Here's what he thinks. Ready? This is about me. This calling, this work, this is about me. And like a lot of people in Scripture, he immediately starts to defend his case as to why he's the wrong guy for the job. Person after person after person in Scripture is recorded with this, of why you've got the wrong person. I'm the runt of the litter, and my litter is the runt of all the other litters. You've got the wrong guy, God. Begins to question it because he thinks it's about him. Think about Jesus' commission, the great commission, to all disciples that will choose to follow him. It's found in Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there. We talk about it all the time here because it's vastly important. All scripture is God-breathed, but all, all scripture doesn't have equal weight to it. In other words, we look at the Great Commission because it's weighty stuff. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations, the whole world. <laughs> Baptizing them, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And then we talk about this part a lot, but at the very end it says what? I am with you. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, here's what we sometimes do. Do you, ever, do you ever read that whole thing and minimize that last part? Behold, I'm with you. And instead, think about what it, what it looks like to go and make disciples of the whole world? That's a big place, God. I mean, you've got the wrong people. We're barely making an impact in our neighborhood. I can barely get inroads to the person who works next to me. And we begin to start turning it inward as if it's about us who's going to accomplish it. I'm slow of speech, God. My theology really stinks and I work at it, but I can't seem to make head or tails of some of these things. This besetting sin of mine, it just keeps creeping up. I barely can hold my family together, my marriage together. I'm, I'm struggling to just make ends meet here. We begin to focus on go and therefore and make disciples, and we forget the second part. Gideon focuses on, you mighty warrior are going to save 
the people of Israel. Go in this might that you have. What's he immediately begin to do? What might? Let me take an inventory really quick. That was short. There is none. And he doesn't hear the second part. Look at verse 16. It's almost as if God is saying, wait a minute. Let me put me back in the center where I should be and always have been instead of you and see if this helps clear the picture up. Verse 16, he says, and the Lord said to him, he's just reiterating something he said two verses ago, but I will be with you and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Here's the thrust of this morning. When God chose Gideon to save the people of Israel from the bullies, He's making it clear to every single combatant, every single warrior who will ever follow in Gideon's footsteps that the victory is from God alone. The point isn't you. The point is God working through you. Let me tell you this morning, this is great news. This lifts every single person in this room who will trust in God and walk with him to a place of saying, wow, that means God could actually use me. I hope the side benefit of this, some in this room, I think a majority feel like, I don't know that God could really use me because of some of the reasons I've already listed and a few more that I haven't listed yet. Some in here feel like, God, pick me. I'm your man. I've got it all together. I've got so much going for me. Trust me, you want me on on your team. You want to give me the ball in the last few seconds of the game. We're not going to go into a whole bunch of this, but but seeing that the victory is from God alone actually lifts up and raises up the humble, and it takes the proud, and it actually brings them down. Some people walk around and say, God chose me. It doesn't last long. If God really did choose them, that doesn't last long, because God opposes the proud, right? But he gives grace to the humble. So sometimes God chooses and, and will and will bring that person low and lift the person who thinks God could never use me. Now there's kind of this fight to the death that's 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 going to go on here. And before even getting into the ring, um, God is going to deal with two things. There's two things that need to be killed before the real fight even begins, before kind of the main event that, that people will see even begins. The first one is that the idols need to be killed. There's a fight that's going to go on with you. This world is a fight. No question about it. And in, and in spiritual matters, what this passage is saying with Gideon is this. Before we even deal with the Midianites, start in your own backyard. Kill the idols in your own backyard. We're not going to take the time to read all of it. But, but moving on in chapter 6, what we see is this, that the pagan altar Baal and his little sidekick Asherah is basically being run. The cult leader is his dad, Gideon's dad. So the town altar is literally in his backyard. And dad's kind of, kind of running the show with that. God wouldn't stand for blessing Gideon's work until he made a public confession regarding the fact that Baal is a false god. He says, kill the idol first. Here's one of the things I see from this. The real enemies in our lives, they're not the Midianites. A lot of times what we think is, it's my pagan boss 
who opposes Christianity and opposes me at every turn and is persecuting me for my faith, he's not the real enemy. The real enemy isn't the family that, that you grew up with. The real enemy isn't, isn't anti-Christian legis, legislation. It isn't some other kind of raider that comes in and steals your hard work. The real enemies in our lives are spiritual. The real enemies in our life are the battles that we fight for our very own soul. They must be publicly smashed, denounced, revealed as the phonies they are. This is a part of what community group is about. It's people coming together and saying, I need to confess something. I've been asking for prayer to not be sucked into this. I got sucked in again. And I just want to say publicly before my brothers and sisters, this is a fake and a phony, and I renounce it, and I place my life back under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Would you guys lift me up that I never go that path again? And people lay hands on and pray, and off we go. Do you see why you need to keep coming back and meeting with the brothers and sisters? In this setting, we don't have a lot of that. We do work that in sometimes but especially broken down into home groups, especially broken down in, in as a family, as a couple, as two Christians meeting together. It's a time to just confess and smash those idols. So Gideon's told to do this. Look at, look at verse 25. That night the Lord said to him, Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has. And cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold here with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bowl and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah um, uh, that, that you shall cut down. God is a jealous God. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but I want to tell you what that means, what that's talking about. One of the pictures we see in the New Testament is that Jesus is the groom and the church, us, us who follow him, are the bride. As such, there's an exclusivity to the relationship. There are vows, there are covenantal vows that go on, and that relationship becomes exclusive. God is a jealous God because he knows that anyone cutting in on that relationship is doing nothing but damage to you. So he lays it down in very strict terms. God's altar cannot be built until Baal's altar is destroyed. God won't coexist with another idol in your life. Jesus said it this way. Jesus talked a lot about money, you know. And Jesus said, you know, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. Now, there's several other places in Scripture that we could start filtering in idols that we recognize a little bit more than Baal and Asherah. Most of us don't struggle with worshiping there, but there's other altars that we fall to. So how did Gideon do this public confession? Look at verse 27. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. This mighty warrior did it under cover of night because it's explicitly told to us he was fearful. He was afraid. I think about a public confession that we have. One of the gifts that's given to us in the New Testament is baptism. Baptism is a public confession so that when you invite your friends and family, people that know you, you are saying, I am choosing Jesus Christ. That's who I'm going to worship. I renounce all other things in my life 
as having lordship of my life. Some of you cheer at a baptism. Some of you have had people maybe at your baptism that, that sneered and didn't think that that was a good thing. That's one of our ways to publicly confess. Now, what if someone came to me and said, Dave, I really, really want to get baptized, but I don't want to do it here. Can we do it in a backyard pool somewhere? I might ask them, why are you choosing to do that? I like pools. And I might say, okay, let's press a little bit harder. Is there any other reason? And let's just say that it came out, you know what? Um, to be really frank, I'm just kind of nervous about being in front of a lot of people. And more than that, I just, I just want to do it in a smaller venue. And really underneath all of that is I'm kind of fearful. I have my answer as a pastor as to whether, whether you should baptize that person or say, no, I'm going to require that you do it here. My answer is found with Gideon. Gideon took the step of yes, did he not? He did a really risky thing by saying, I think I'm going to cut down dad's pagan god. Along with his title and standing in the town. And I don't think the town people are going to be too happy about it. That's why I'm doing it at night. But I'm going to do it. You know that God blessed that? That's like mustard seed faith. That's like, I'm doing it, but I'm doing it in a backyard pool because I'm fearful. Now, maybe we're going to have a rash of backyard baptisms in the coming months. But honestly, I look at that, I say, there's my answer. Would I encourage them to come up and say a few words? I would. But I won't require it. You know, the prophet Isaiah is describing Jesus. And he says this. Um, We're going to wait on that. Let me just give another nugget here. Um, God calls you to do something sometimes, and uh, it's, it's a double whammy when you have to fight some of the things going on in your own life and the community that you've been raised in that doesn't stand up and applaud what you're doing in obedience to God. The townspeople essentially, not only are they not happy, they form a mob. And they're ready to have Gideon's throat. So he hasn't even gotten to the ring. He's not even driving to the boxing ring yet for the main event. And he's about ready to get killed by his own people. You know what exhausts Christians sometimes? Fighting the devil, fighting temptation in their own life, fighting for the souls of other people, and fighting other Christians. can't tell you how many pastors are not in ministry today because they got tired of the infighting. They got so tired of the friendly fire that it literally took them out of ministry for a season or permanently. We see that in Scripture, too. Here's how the message records what goes on. Everyone's coming to the ta- from the town to come have his throat. They wake up in the morning. Who did this? They did some investigating. They said, Gideon did it. The son of the guy running the whole deal. Then it says in verse 31, But Joash, that's his father, stood up to the crowd pressing in on him. Are you going to fight Baal's battle for him? Interesting. Dad at some point already began to see Baal as a sham. 
His heart's starting to be revealed. He's actually standing up for his son. Are you going to save him? Anyone who takes Baal's side will be dead by morning. If Baal is a god, in fact, let him fight his own battles and defend his own altar. They nicknamed Gideon that day Jeroboam. Because after he had torn down the Baal altar, he said, let Baal fight his own battles. Do you see it? The mighty warrior in, in tiny shades of change is starting to act a little bit like a mighty warrior. Fearful Gideon is turning in. He picks up a new cool nickname from the town. The one who contends against Baal. Let Baal fight his own battles. That's what they refer to him the rest of the chapter. Kind of cool. So do battles with your own idols. This is the Christian life. You're either fighting temptation or you're giving into temptation. You're siding with temptation. Your Christian life is a fight. Keep at it. All right, don't only kill the idols. The second thing is to kill the doubt. Before bullies are fought, the inward battle of idol worship and doubt must be defeated. Look at verse 36. Verse 36, it says this. This may be what Gideon's most famous for. Then Gideon said to God, If you will serve, save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. Remember the fleece of wool? If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it is dry all on, on, on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Getting at this point, maybe should have been content with that, right? God was patient, did what he required. But maybe he started, like little seeds of doubt started going, you know what, maybe I'm not a dew expert. Maybe dew would be there anyways. Maybe that was a dumb question. Let's go on. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. I think I had it wrong. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. You're the parent. You're God. How do you handle this situation? In your best days, in your most godlike patient days, you do what verse 40 says, and God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Can I just say this plainly, that Gideon's fleece is not a sign of faith? It's the exact opposite. There's one place in Scripture where we are commanded to test God. You know what it is? It has to do with money and giving the tithe at church. He says, test me in this. You bring the whole tithe. Stop ripping me off. You test me in this and see if I won't cause over an abundant blessing to you. That's the only place in Scripture we're told to test God. There's a lot of other testing of God that goes on. And it's just his gracie, uh, grace and mercy that, that, that doesn't get angry at that. So it's not a sign of faith. It's also not a search for God's will. He clearly has God's will. He's not seeking out God's will. He's seeking confirmation. It's really a desperate grasp for security for someone who knows very clearly what's required of him but is reluctant out of fear to do it. Once again, does any of this sound familiar? I read this story and I see myself in this. I go, wow, God, You've clearly laid some things out for me, and I'm the reluctant one. I'm the one who clearly knows and wants to test and check it out. 
I don't know if you've ever resisted the plain and simple will of God, but fear to obey, fear of the battle, fear of the future shows up in some really strange ways. Here's how Christians kind of mask it to sound really, really spiritual when really they're just fearful. Okay, here's a couple that I came up with. Um, I'm just really seeking God right now. So, so they make their testing of God kind of this uber-spiritual, I'm just seeking him right now. When really it's procrastination. Here's another one. Um, I don't want to get involved in that ministry. I'm not going to give there. I don't want to sacrifice here. I'm in a waiting phase right now. Just waiting to see what the Lord has for me. Once again, that, in the great context of things, that could be true. But I think a lot of times that's used as kind of a, a spiritual mask for, I'm fearful. Pretty clear what God wants me to do, and I'm pretty convinced He's got the wrong guy. I'm hoping He'll forget. I think if I wait this out, I think I'm good. Here's a really spiritual sounding one. I'm still doing some study to find out just what God wants me to do. The Hebrew in this part is very technical, and I'm just kind of studying it out and, and really, you know, working to get a handle on it. What I'm saying is this there's, there's a lot very clearly, very plainly, you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew, revealed will of God in this book. Most of the faces I'm looking at in this room I know, and I know that we talk about them and hear them a lot. I know many of you read them for yourselves in midweek. The challenge to me is this. Am I already doing what I clearly know, or am I pulling a Gideon by doing some of these things? It's doubt. My stalling is disobedience. My putting out a fleece to test God is really just disobedience. My doubt in this situation is disobedience. Gideon's utterly startled that God would choose him for good reason. He seems underqualified. To say he's underqualified is actually an understatement. He seems like the least likely candidate, or at least for sure, you know, right down, down near the bottom. He's kind of a poster boy for all that's wrong with Israel. He's just the the sort of person God can use to rescue those who are following after Baal worship. Who does he choose? The The guy's son who's leading the whole deal. The guy who has it in his own house. They're whoring after other gods. It's in his own house. If Gideon demonstrates anything, it demonstrates that God's adequacy is what matters most, not our inadequacy. So every time you and I go to make a list for God of all the reasons we're the wrong choice, would I take that list, crinkle it up, and realize that's not the point? What does God need to rescue Israel from the Midianites? Let's go on. Gideon's faith needed encouragement, by the way, in this, in this test. And this gracious father who's slow to anger provides the needed encouragement. I love it, just says, and it was so. Gideon makes this request, and it was so. Sorry to ask one more thing. Can you do this also? And he made it happen. Matthew 12, 20. This is, the, this is the passage of Isaiah describing Jesus. A bruised reed, Jesus, will not break. And a, and a smoldering wick, a little flickering candle, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. You know what's powerful about Gideon? and his tiny little step of yes in the dark because he's fearful, is I look at that and I realize, wow, God is still patient 
with little tiny flickering faith. Just just the tiniest spark of faith. God doesn't go, you're done. He didn't commit wholeheartedly. A bruised reed, he's not going to go, you're done. I'm just done with you. Instead, he lifts it up. Do you see that he's encouraging Gideon's tiny little faith? He's fanning the flame. He's being patient. Jesus is still doing that today. All right. Kill the idols? Check. Kill the doubt? Check. Here's his RSVP. First of all, Gideon gets a call from the Lord, unlike most of us. Hearing audibly from God. Then getting to test God and see a pretty dramatic, I think, result saying, yeah, I'm with you. This is really happening. He responds with doubt, question, questioning, and testing. He's not exactly kind of your, your model hero, right? But after all this testing that Gideon does, now it's God's turn to test Gideon. I'll kind of fast forward. We won't read all of it. But essentially, God takes this army of Israel. It's a pretty big nation by this point, And he says, nope, too big. And he decides to start whittling it down. Flip over to chapter 7, verse 2. In chapter 7, 2, it says, The Lord God said to Gideon, it's going to tell us explicitly, why is God shrinking the army? It's to test Gideon, and for another reason. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Which is kind of funny, because Gideon, maybe a little bit earlier, would have said, I would have led the charge to that. Let's go! God just let us off the hook. Let him return home and hurry home from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. 22,000 guys are like, no shame in this, I'm out. I am fearful and trembling. And the Lord God said to Gideon, eh, the people are still too many. So he whittles it down from a large number to, to still kind of a large number. And then he goes down and he does this test. Many of you know the test. He goes down and, and talks about how they drink at the water. And he says, whoever drinks this way, they can go. Those who drink this way, they can stay. It whittles down to 300 people. What does God need to rout a superior army? Evidently, not much. He's a creative God, is he not? Here's God. Right? He just says, I think I'll go with 300 this time. I haven't done that one before. Let's go with trumpets. Let's go with breaking jars and torches. That's what I'm going with today. God's creative. God can do what he wants. God's sovereign over all of this. You can read about it. We're not even going to read the, the, the rest of that. But through the rest of chapter 8, that's how, that's how God goes and defeats the Midianites, captured so brilliantly in our picture here uh, this morning. Let me turn it to you. Here's my question for you. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Another way of asking it is this. How are you being bullied today? Some of you in this room are being bullied by the what-ifs. And what-ifs have paralyzed you for so many years. Yeah, yeah but what if... I don't know the future. I could have never expected what went on this last year. What's this next year going to be like? I mean, I would step out in faith, but what if? And sometimes it paralyzes people. Maybe you're afraid because you know you don't have what it takes. 
God's calling you to save people from a bully, and you go, man, I've already taken inventory of that. I think about that a lot. I don't have what it takes. What does it take for God to overcome a bully? Mm, This instance, 300 people, broken jars, trumpets, torches, and a mighty warrior who's hiding out. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. You can just write it down, but Paul is crying out to God about his insufficiencies, about his weaknesses. And Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Next time you have your list of all the ways you're insufficient as a father, insufficient in your job, insufficient as a Christian, you just, you just write those down. And before you crinkle it up, you write those down. And you write over that. God's power is made perfect in this. In all this weakness that I've listed. All this weakness that I can see. Then you crinkle up that list and throw it away realizing it's irrelevant. If God is sufficient, does it even matter that you and I are deficient? If God's sufficient, if our focus is on God and all that he has, all the resources he has, our lack of resources, our lack of talent, our lack of consistency begins to dissipate. The message this morning for you is this. Be of good courage. Do you know that as a Christian, you've been given a name? At the moment of new birth, At the moment of repentance and just saying, I'm done. I'm trusting in you, Christ. I'm trusting in you alone. You're given a new name. You're called prince. You're called princess. You are all of a sudden a daughter and a son in the kingdom of God. And the king is father. That's the relationship that we enter into by faith. John 15 Jesus is talking. He says, abide there. Dwell there. Set up your shop right there. Remain in that love. What does perfect perfect love do to fear? What does it do? It drives it out. Oil and water. Dark and light. Light comes in. Perfect love from the Father comes in. It dispels fear. Some of you have a walking, living, breathing testimony to what I'm talking about right now. You say, man, if you knew the fears that controlled my life before the light of Christ came in, man, I'm a walking testimony of that truth. You've been given a new name. Walk in it. Perhaps like Israel, you're living in the promised land, in the kingdom, but you're living like a fugitive, terrorized by bullies. That's some people who walk as Christians not in victory. Be of good courage and fight the good fight. I already said this morning that life is a fight, and you've heard this phrase, pick your battles, right? Pick your battles means don't fight the same over every little thing. I would say this, pick your side. Once you get your side lined up, the battles are going to come to you. If you're taking notes, I want you to just write down Matthew chapter 10, starting in about verse 16, 16 to 28. Here's the gist of that passage, which we're not going to take time to read right now. Jesus is telling these disciples as they go out, he's sending them out as sheep 
in the midst of wolves. You think there's a fight ahead? Jesus is clearly telling his disciples, there's a fight ahead. As you drive out demons, as you heal the sick, as you proclaim the good news, as you mention my name, guess what they did to the master? They called me the master, the, 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 the head of the house of demons. What are they going to call you? They are going to kill me. What are they going to do to you? And he says, but as you're being delivered up, as you're being thrown in jail, as you're being brought before governors, don't you fear for a second what you're going to say. Spirit's going to give you what to say in the moment. The fight is the Lord. The victories is the Lord's. All right, let me invite the band up. If you promise to keep listening. Here's what I want to drive home. Remember Gideon and remember that victory is from the Lord. When you think Gideon, I don't want you to think, I don't want you to think anything else, but I want you to think the victory is from the Lord alone. That's what he was trying to drive home to him. Your fear doesn't matter. The number of chariots and horses and swords that you have, none of that matters. The victory is from the Lord alone. Here's my questions for you. What cycle are you in right now? Obedience, protection, defiance, or are you being spanked right now? Are you being disciplined right now? Take stock of your life. Don't just keep going round and round and round like the laundry. Where are you at in that cycle right now? I don't know where you're at, but Judges 6 says, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. It's always a good time to cry out to the Lord. You're complacent, cry out to the Lord. God, keep me from being apathetic. Wake me up before I have to go down that path again. You're in the midst of the fire. You cry out to the Lord. You have victory going on right now, his hand of protection and blessing. You cry out to the Lord. Remember the Lord in your, in your safety and comfort right now. How about starting in your backyard? Is there a bail there? Some of you are thinking, well, not last time I checked. No, Asherah poles, I'm good. Here's the point. Whatever you believe holds the ultimate power of your future, whether that be money, job, relationship, comfort, you fill it in, that's your idol. That's what you've got to do business with. That's what you need to tear down. God says, you know what? Those things burn really well. Let's build an altar that honors me. Cut it down. Use the very wood of that on that very spot and worship me in the way that I prescribe. Here's what's interesting about Baal. You know what Baal was? Baal was a god of fertility. Baal said this, you give to me, you sacrifice to me, I'm going to give you tons of kids, which is a blessing. I'm going to make your crops over in abundance, which is a blessing. I'm going to give you, catch this, life more abundant. Who did, what, what, what did Jesus come and say? That was his offer, right? Baal was terrible at it. Guess who else worshipped Baal? The Midianites! What are the Midianites doing with this, with this God who's going to give them more abundant? They're stealing from the other people who are worshiping the same God. There's not an overabundance going on, but no one caught it. No one caught it how terrible of a God Baal was until God stepped in. Two more. What are you afraid of? What ifs can paralyze, but also needing to know all of the details and facts before you'll take a single step of yes can cripple you. That was part of Gideon's downfall, wasn't it? He wanted to know the details far out in advance. You note that I didn't spend hardly any time today on the main event. The main event, climbing into the ring, killing off the Midianites, that's almost an afterthought. Once you kill the idols, once you kill the doubt, God's got that. That's God's victory. It's going to happen. So much we focus on that. Finally, I don't know what God's called you to do. I don't know what, what fight God has, has called you to do. 
But let me do something for a second. Curran, stand up. I want Curran to represent lost people. Some of you have a burning passion for lost people, and you say, there's no other name by which men must be saved but Jesus Christ. Who's thinking of them? Naomi, would you stand up for a second? There's helpless people. Some of you have a heart for helpless people. You see the world. You see people just bullying them. And you say, who's thinking about the helpless? Steve Weiss, would you stand up for a second? There's hungry people. There's people that go around, and you just have a heart, and you see that, and you see in the Scriptures, Jesus cares about people's stomachs. I'm going to fight that fight. Dwayne, would you stand up for a second? There are people in the womb right now that are being attacked, and you say, who is going to stand up for that voice? Who's going to make a statement about it? And you want to enter into that fight. Robert, would you stand up? There's fatherless people. There's people all around us who, who don't have a family. God sets the lonely in families. And you want to fight for those people. Bertha, would you stand up? There's illiterate people. Do you know that that's a bully? And you just go, man, I've got knowledge that I could share with people. I could go into that fight. On and on we could go, couldn't we? Couldn't we think of someone for every single person in this room to stand up? Here's why. I want you to just look around at a few people. Life is going to be a fight. Here's my admonition, church. Fight the good fight. Go with God. Go with God. It's his battle. If he's calling you to this, some of you had your heart and mind stirred when I just mentioned one of these here. Those are some of the bullies in this world that God wants to use the church, his people, regular people, fearful marshmallows to be mighty warriors to go in and accomplish. Remain standing. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship, and you can sit down. Thank you for helping me out. God, there's just so many people in this world who no one's standing up and saying, what about this people group? God, we, we beg of you. We beg of you that you would use us. We beg of you that you would give the grace required to take a step of yes, a mustard seed step of yes towards saying, God, I don't even know why you would choose me, but you won't let this thought go. You won't let these people out of my mind. It's not right. God, stir in us. I thank you for Christine, 16 years old, saying, This summer, it's not about me. This summer, it's about people over there. Go with her, God. We can't wait to hear the victories that you're going to achieve through a young girl's faith in our congregation. Raise up hundreds more. We promise, God, you'll get the glory. We won't fight for you saying that we did it somehow. We lean on your strategy. We lean on your resources. We lean on you for the victory to save. And all God's people joined in one voice and said, Amen.